Welcome to Ottawa Valley Community Church, where we simply want to help you encounter Jesus, be transformed, and share His love. If you wanted to describe the great challenge of our lives, it's obviously not uh, the one with the most toys wins. Uh, It's obviously not about an accumulation of stuff. It's not about who has seen the most of the world, who's had the most fabulous experiences. It's not about bodybuilding and perfect health. It's not about escaping death and preserving our lives. Uh, We all eventually die. It's not about extending our lives. If we live 90 years instead of just 80, that 10 years, as wonderful as they might be, are just a blink in light of the eternity that is ahead of you through your life in Christ Jesus. Uh, there is a great challenge in our lives, and that challenge is to, as closely as we can as human beings, live our lives passionately according to the will of God. To live as people who will be following him daily, laying down our dreams, laying down our plans, laying down our lives, all of this, um, to find ourselves in the great challenge of picking up our cross and following Jesus. That is where the joy is. That is where the glory is. And we're looking at the story of the Garden of Gethsemane at this phenomenal moment of prayer in the life of Jesus where he comes to this place of saying, not my will, yours be done, Lord. And as we examine that prayer and we examine that part of the story, we want to dig in Uh, to the richness of it and understand something of what is going on there. When you and I pray, we most often go to battle with the idea that we are on our knees there to move the will and the heart of God, to get God to do the thing that we want God to do. And that is perfectly legitimate. There are tons of prayers like that in the scripture uh, where we petition God. We ask him to do something in the world. We ask for strength to achieve something we want to achieve. We want to see someone healed that we want them to be healed. We want to provide something. We want God to intervene in the life of a person or a nation. These are all legitimate things. But there's a secondary battle that happens in prayer, and we see it evidenced most dramatically in the story of the Garden of Gethsemane, and that is the battle to surrender our wills. The battle not to move his heart, but the battle to move our hearts. The battle uh, not to see him do something we want. The battle to come to a place where we do the thing he wants. That's the second side of our battle in prayer. And in the story of the Garden of Gethsemane, we see this battle for acceptance of the will of God happening uh, with uh, two different casts in the story. Uh, the first cast is Jesus. Jesus is battling to come to the cross, battling to come through uh, his, his physical limitations to go and get ready to endure the torture and the pain and the death that he's about to endure for us, uh, to bring his will into line with the fathers, and he wins that battle. And we can be very grateful that he did. Uh, the second battle is the disciples' battle to pick up the cross and to follow him. They didn't do so well. 
they didn't do so well. And we often don't do so well, but there's something uh, beautiful for us to see in these, in these movements. So let's just read the text. We've read it all three uh, of the last weeks, and we want to just go into it once again. We're just getting this in our heart and trying to learn from it. So here we are in Matthew chapter 26, starting at verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass until I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. And the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. In the text, those two battles are kind of intertwined. Jesus prays, comes back to the disciples. Jesus prays, comes back to the disciples. And I want to just separate those two stories out and, and, and hear Jesus' battle uh, to pray and then Jesus' uh, disciples' battle to follow on. Uh, the first thing that we want to do is, is take from Jesus' engagement in prayer here uh, the idea that uh, Jesus is not really play-acting here. This is uh, something real that he's doing. Like he's sovereign God, and, and all through the scriptures we see him crying and weeping and, and struggling, and we have, we have a temptation to think that, well, he's sovereign God, this can't really affect him, this can't really touch him. Uh, but we see a reality here in how he's walking through this moment, that this is actually something uh, significant for him. In Luke, or Matthew 26, uh, 46 to, 36 to 46, it says, he begins to be sorrowful and troubled. He says that my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. My soul is sorrowful, even to death. What's he saying here? Jesus is saying, I am so broken about this. I am so sad about this. I am so uh, weary. I am so distressed. I am so anxious about this that I don't know if I can get past my sorrow to get where I'm going. The sorrow itself, the anticipation itself is leading me close to death. I might die from just the anticipation of this thing. That's the, that's the, the weight of the angst he's feeling, anticipating this thing that he's being called to do. In Luke 22, 44, it says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. He knows he's going to the place where he is going to bear the weight of your sin and my sin on the cross. And he knows that the path there leads through betrayal and a brutal trial and torture and ultimately death. 
And he doesn't want to have to endure that. His flesh, he doesn't know his flesh can handle it. He doesn't know his body can sustain it. I mean, he's committed to this. He's signaled it to the disciples. He knows it's going to happen. Uh, his spirit is, is game for the challenge. But he's saying with everything that's in his physical body, I don't know that I can walk through this. And for us, when we look at the hard thing that's ahead of us, when you look at the hard challenge that's ahead of you, when you look at that thing that God may be calling you to in life, very often, just the anticipation of it is enough to divert your course before you've even tried it. And that's so true for us. Uh, we, we see in our minds a path that's ahead and we turn away from what God might have for us. And so Jesus comes to prayer to deal with that problem. He comes to prayer to deal with that anxiety. He comes to prayer to deal with that sense of anticipation. And he comes, he prays three times uh, about this. And it's interesting, this, this threefold prayer uh, that we see in the text. Um, you know, people like Augustine and Luther you know, are speculating about why those threefold prayers are there. Um, but what I think like some of them say in common is that this is a mirroring of the temptation that Jesus experienced uh, in, in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry. Uh, we don't see that actually in the text, but that speculation on the part of Augustine is that in those three moments of prayer, Jesus was given the opportunity or at least considered those moments back in the wilderness, considered the possibility, hey, there's some better options for me here. There's maybe a better way for me to go. There's maybe a, a nicer way to do it. That, that offer that the enemy made to me, that, that actually has sounded pretty good right now. We don't know if that's what Matthew was thinking. We don't know if that's what was in Jesus' heart. But, but Augustine and Luther kind of are, are wondering about that. So it's, it's fair for us to ponder it too. But what's notable here, um, more, than, more than anything, is if you look closely between the first and the second prayer, there's a shift in posture that happens in Jesus' life. There's a shift in posture that happens between these two prayers. So if we read them quickly, and it's really helpful to look at them in the Greek, you can sort of see the distinction a little bit more clearly. Uh, but, but Jesus shifts between prayer one and prayer two. The first prayer sort of goes like this. It's a simple request. It's his strategy. It's his prayerful approach to the Father is, get me out of this thing. I don't want to take this cup. I don't want to take this into myself. I don't want to do this. Please let this cup pass from me. I don't want to endure it. This is John Piper's thinking, uh, noting this sort of uh, transition in his thinking. Get me out of this thing. And isn't that how we often start in prayer? Like, like we, want, we want an escape route, first off. Like, like we, want, we want safety. We want to get out. And the second prayer goes like this, um, and, and again, this is more clear in the Greek. Um, after God sort of says no to him, Jesus says, um, and, and by the way, we shouldn't feel it too surprising that God says no. Uh, God says no to us all the time. and We shouldn't feel like it's unloving or unkind when we say we want an escape route and God says no to us. 
Uh, we do that with our children uh, from time to time, and we shouldn't be afraid to do that to our children, to say no sometimes. But God, presumably in prayer, says to Jesus, hey, uh, this, this can't be avoided. This is something that you need to go through. And Jesus' prayer is then to say, if it can't be avoided, let it succeed. If it cannot pass, your will be done. See that in the text. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but, but as you will. And then it's like, okay, it, you said no, so if it can't pass, unless I drink it, then your will be done. It's like a, a son says, Dad, I don't want to go to college. Let me just work for you and your company without a degree. I'll learn the ropes that way. And Dad says, son, I'm sorry. There's no way around it. You've, you've got to go to school. And the son says, if I can't skip school, then let's get it done. Help me get an A. It's kind of what's happening here in Jesus' heart. So that shift in posture is a shift from praying for escape to praying for success with something hard. And that's something that has to be the movement of our hearts in prayer. We come to the Lord legitimate for us to say, Lord, I don't want to go into this. I don't want to go through this thing. Let it pass from me. But when we know, when we know with certainty that we're going to have to walk through the challenge, we come to him and we say, okay, if this can't pass for me, then help me get it done. Help me get it done your way. Help me get it done according to your will. Uh, our hearts move. We become less committed to our will, to our way, and more committed to his own. There's just a couple of clues in the scriptures as to how that movement happens in Jesus' life. In Luke 22, 43, it says this, um, the Spirit helps him. It says, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. There appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Matthew doesn't have this in his account, but Luke uh, makes this plain. Somehow an angel comes and, and just strengthens him. That's not something that we often think about when we think about our prayers. We think of our prayers as pretty lonely and pretty solitary. When you're praying through something hard, through something challenging, it, it's very often that we're like, we think we're alone in it. But God will actually help us pray to him. Isn't that grace? Isn't that incredible grace that God will help us pray to him? God will help us battle with him. God will help us in this journey to, to see our wills turn to him. Uh, he strengthens us. Uh, we see that in Romans 8, 28. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. See, the work of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit coming alongside of us and, and praying when we don't know how to pray for ourselves. So, so that's a, a thing for us to take away is when it's hard to pray to God, God will help us pray to him. It's an incredible work of grace. And then the second thing we see in Hebrews chapter 5, and it's just uh, what the author of Hebrews does is he notes Jesus' approach that his approach is with reverence. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And ultimately, of course, God did save him from death. He went through death and then was resurrected, saved through death, from death. Um, he was heard because of his reverence. 
And that word for reverence in the Greek, ulabias, uh, means uh, to have a fear of God and a reverence for God and an awe of God. And that is sometimes uh, starkly contrasted with our posture in prayer. Our posture in prayer is very often self-oriented, isn't it? It's very often us-oriented. It's not always worship. It's, and, and it's, you know, again, it's legitimate to come to God with petition for us to come and to share our needs. But uh, a prayer that's going to change our hearts begins with reverence. Will we come to him and, and pray that he turns us inside out, turns my heart away from self, turns my heart away from selfishness, and turns it in reverence and worship and love for him? And then he end with the Spirit's help. And with a heart of reverence, Jesus accepts this destiny. He accepts that he is going to have to drink this cup. And he walks through the moment. Uh, He goes through the betrayal of Judas. He goes through the abandonment of the disciples. He goes through the humiliation of the trials, the torture, and the death. And ultimately achieves for us salvation on the cross. He won. He walks through it and wins. The disciples didn't do so well in the short term, and we'll see that they won in the end. Where Jesus passes the test, the disciples fail. Uh, One of the interesting questions about that text actually is, uh, what are the disciples doing there anyway? Like, what are the disciples doing there? There are all kinds of times in the scriptures where uh, Jesus goes away to a solitary place and prays. The disciples go on a boat across the lake. Jesus walks around or whatever it is. We talked about uh, Jesus' intentionality in prayer last week and didn't take a lot of time to unpack the background. Uh, but we see this incredible prayer life of Jesus, of solitude, of intention, of, of, uh, of planning. And uh, in this case, he could have very easily, with all that intentionality, have planned to go and to be alone. But in this case, he chose the disciples to go with him. Uh, and so I think we're supposed to take something from Uh, the story of the disciples in parallel with the story of Jesus. Uh, And so we look at the cast of characters. It's interesting who he brings with him. He brings the 11 disciples with him to the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, That's, of course, 11 disciples minus Judas. Judas is gone at this point. And then he gets to the garden with the 11 disciples, and he says to eight of them, why don't you guys stay here at the edge of the garden and just hang out? (laughs) <laughs> like, how does that feel to you as one of the disciples? But he does. He, he brings the inner circle. He brings his clique uh, in a little bit closer. We know that Jesus had uh, some intention of that, and his heart isn't to be cliquey and being facetious. Um, but Jesus brings uh, what it says in the text, Peter and the sons of Zebedee into the garden. And what I think is really interesting about that is uh, the, the sons of Zebedee, we have seen them in the beginning of the book of Matthew. They're identified as James and John. And there are a number of times through the text and in other books where we see Peter, James, and John show up uh, in the story of Jesus, named Peter, James, and John. But for some reason in this moment, it's Peter and the sons of Zebedee. And the way Matthew writes, he's just, this isn't just Matthew just free-flowing, freestyling. He's not wrapping this text. This is a a work of literary genius. So most commentators think there's some intention here. Why is this uh, Peter and the sons of Zebedee? And we think it's because what Matthew wants us to know is, yes, the inner circle is there. The three are there. There's something to be taken from that. And then somehow Peter is singled out. 
we want to see Peter in a different light. And so we're going to look at uh, those two things. First, why the three? Why Peter and the sons of Zebedee? Why that crowd? Why those three? We can't know exactly what Matthew had in mind. Um, but where we're else, the other place we see the three in the text uh, not too far uh, before is in Matthew chapter 17 on the Mount of Transfiguration. How many of you remember that story of the Mount of Transfiguration? Uh, Peter, James, and John go up the mountain uh, to, to where with Jesus, and Jesus is transfigured. It says his face is blinding white like the sun, and his clothes are white like light itself. And then the two uh, great people, you know, the, the sort of symbols for what uh, the Hebrew community is all about, the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah show up beside Jesus. He's revealed as the son of God. He's revealed in glory. And the disciples are like, whoa, this is amazing. This is incredible. You know, let's set up some tents. We want to stay in this place. We want to keep these guys here. You know, I'm thinking, let's throw a conference. You know, we can get tickets on Eventbrite. You know, we get some people up here to see that the law and the prophets are legitimizing this person, Jesus, that we're following. This is amazing. This is glorious. And then just a short time later in the garden, Peter, James, and John see Jesus revealed in his sorrow. And they fall asleep. And isn't that something to challenge our hearts? We love Jesus in his glory. We love Jesus in his beauty. Uh, we want to set up tents. We want to hold the conference. But when the suffering comes, we want to go unconscious and take a nap. Apostles knew him. They knew who he was in his glory. But there was something in them that wanted to avoid him in his suffering. And there's something in that for us in this text, to be people who love him in his brokenness as much as we do the rider on the white horse. We want to love the rider on the white horse and the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world. And have our faith anchored, understanding the God who made sacrifice for us and the God who rose in victory. And not live loving one or the other. And so there's this call to follow him in his suffering, that in that moment, those three disciples, Peter, James, and John, uh, missed. And that's a cautionary tale for us. We need to follow him in his beauty and follow him in suffering. And so Jesus sort of is going to try to address this problem. He's going to try to explain to them what's happening here. Uh, and he basically comes down to this simple line. He, he says, hey, you, you know, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Uh, earlier in verse uh, 33, 34, uh, before the Garden of Gethsemane, we noticed that these texts are actually connected. He's just warned them. He said, hey, the shepherd is about to be stricken and the sheep are about to be scattered. And they all sort of react. And Peter reacts and says, oh, no, we'll die with you. We'll go to the grave with you. We'll do, we'll do everything uh, for you. We'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, okay, come pray with me that you don't fall into temptation. That's the connection, the thread that's running through the text. And when it comes to that moment of prayer, for them to 
avoid the temptation of falling away from Jesus, of avoiding their calling to follow him. Uh, they, they fall asleep. They fail. And Jesus says, here's the problem. Uh, the, the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Isn't that just true of us? We're excited. We're so easily excited about all kinds of things. We're so easily enthusiastic about following Jesus. We're so enthusiastic about the good things of him. But when it comes down to the reality that sometimes following him has a physical, a monetary, a time cost to us, the enthusiasm doesn't beat our flesh. The enthusiasm doesn't produce action, doesn't produce results in us. That should challenge us. But what we see here, that call to pray that you will not enter into temptation, that you'll overcome this weak flesh, tells us you know, something important about prayer. We see prayer as a, as a spiritual activity, as something that takes us into the heavens, something that takes us uh, into a place of being with God, but there is something powerful about prayer that is actually meant to change something about our physical being. Something about prayer is meant to change our actions. It's meant to change our bodies. It's meant to change our ability uh, to endure suffering. It's meant to change our ability to stay awake and alive and alert to the things that God has for us. We often think we don't have the strength to pray. But we need to pray to have the strength to pray. There's a grace again in this. We go to God for the power to pray. We go for God to the strength, for the strength to do the spiritual thing that we're called to do. It all comes back to him. It all comes back to him. Prayer is meant to strengthen us. So that's, I think, what we see in that cast of characters, why those three are there. But then why Peter? What, why is Peter singled out? Why are the other ones not named? And again, uh, this is commentators poking at it and trying to guess. And we honestly can't say 100% sure. We know that this is what was in, in Matthew's mind. But I, I think knowing the way Matthew writes and knowing the genius of, of the literature, it just can't be a mistake that... Uh, Jesus comes in verse uh, 33 and 34 and tells Peter, you know what, you, you are, you're going to deny me three times. You're not going to follow through. You're, you're going to fall. I, I'm, I'm warning you, you're going to deny me three times. And then in this text, the Garden of Gethsemane, verses 40, 43 and, four, and, sorry, and, and 45, Jesus fails to pray three times. He fails to watch and wait with Jesus three times. And then at the end of this very same chapter in verses 72 and 74, Peter denies Jesus three times. Jesus' denial, or Peter's denial of Jesus didn't just happen under pressure when he was being interrogated. Jesus' denial of Jesus happened in the garden when he fell asleep, when he missed prayer. To put it in another way, 
think what Matthew's saying here is that our ability to walk with Jesus is directly proportional to our ability to watch with Jesus. Our ability to walk with Jesus is proportionate to our ability to watch with him. If you want to live a life of faithfulness, of victory, of following him, of taking up your cross and walking with him, that journey starts on your knees. Why we take prayer seriously, and I think we see in our lives the cost sometimes of not taking it seriously. And then, of course, we see in the end, <laughs> the disciples just fail in this moment, don't they? Jesus says, come, uh, the hour is here, um, let us go. And the disciples go as far as watching Jesus become arrested. Peter gets mad and cuts off the high priest's servant ear. And then they go, and they're gone. They abandon him. You know, I don't think this story is just about we suck and Jesus is great. It's not the end of the story. The people reading the book of Matthew aren't reading it and thinking, oh man, Peter, you really bit. Um, Jesus, you're really good and glorious, and which, which he is. That would be a perfectly legitimate way to write the story is to just say, all glory to Jesus, we stink. Those who read the story knew Peter. While he failed in this moment, Jesus gloriously redeems him. Jesus gloriously sets it right. Jesus gloriously restores him. Somehow Peter made it back to the upper room to pray with the disciples after Jesus died. Somehow he had the courage to run to the tomb when the women told him that he was alive. He was excited uh, to see that. Uh, Peter meets Jesus and sees his resurrected body. In John 21, uh, verse 15 through 22 or 3, uh, we see uh, Jesus uh, beautifully reinstate Peter with a three-stage reinstatement. John, who was there in the garden and saw Peter fail three times in prayer, uh, shows up and records the story of Jesus' reinstatement where Jesus says, hey, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yeah, I love you, Jesus. Jesus says, feed my sheep. And this is repeated three times. A threefold reinstatement for a threefold failure. Incredibly beautiful, powerful story. Uh, Peter uh, goes to the upper room to pray to await the coming of the Holy Spirit. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He goes rushing out into the streets. He preaches a sermon that reaches 3,000 people in a single day. Um, Peter is later in verse in chapter 10 in Acts. He actually uh, has this dream uh, that, that speaks to the people of the church and the, and the Christians in Jerusalem and says, uh, through this dream, hey, this faith, this, this belief in Jesus is meant to go out to the Gentiles, and millions are ultimately saved because of that uh, vision that Peter receives from God. God uses him in that way. Uh, Peter preaches under threat of imprisonment in Acts 12. He gets put in jail. He's asleep in jail, which I love this little bit. Peter's always sleeping. Uh, he falls asleep in jail, and the angel comes and basically kicks him and wakes him up and breaks him out of jail. But this is a story because the house church uh, gathered around and was praying for Peter to be delivered. So they're praying for him while he's sleeping, and he gets delivered. 
I love that story, an incredible uh, story of God's grace. And somehow we get to uh, Galatians chapter 2, verse 9. And we see that Peter, James, and John, those three who failed in the garden, are seen and considered to be pillars in the church way down the line in the time of Paul. Somewhere along the way, sleepy Peter and James and John ended up following Jesus and acting at his will. They ended up turning their hearts to him and following and picking up their cross and following him. John was arrested in Ephesus. This is church tradition, not in the scriptures. Um, They tried to boil him in oil, but he wouldn't burn, so he was exiled to the island of Patmos. Again, this is church tradition, not in scriptures. We don't know uh, if that's true, but that's what the early fathers of the faith believed. Uh, he followed Jesus his whole life. He wrote the book of Revelation, uh, was later taken off the island of Patmos in his old age, and went to Asia Minor and died sometime in, in his 80s there, still loving and serving God. For, for 80 years, Peter followed Jesus carrying his cross. James was the first of the apostles to follow Jesus in martyrdom. Church tradition has that he was beheaded by Herod Agrippa, Herod Agrippa I in Jerusalem at the age of 44. He wrote us the book of James. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything perseverance in following Christ. And Peter, tradition tells that he was crucified upside down in Rome, demanding that he wasn't worthy to be crucified right way up, as Jesus was. Followed Jesus to the end. Carried his cross. It doesn't sound like a fun journey for you or for me at all, but that's the call to pick up our crosses and follow. And that journey for us, worship team, you guys can come ahead forward. That journey for us happens on our knees. I've asked the, the worship team to just reprise. There's, they had another song prepared. Apologies for all that prep work that's not getting uh, done. But this last song that we, that we sung before the message, I think just so powerfully nails for us this call to follow Jesus, this call to pick up our cross, this call to our knees to pray. So we want to just enter in and we want to ask the Holy Spirit to come and to speak to us, uh, to call us forward, to give us vision for what we're called to do, to give us vision for how we're to follow Jesus, how we're to pick up our cross, where we're to go, and then to give us the courage to hit our knees and see that our will and our hearts are turned to him. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of Ottawa Valley Community Church, visit ovchurch.ca.